Well, good evening. It is good to be with you tonight. It's good to see all of you. We appreciate everyone who is tuning in or have assembled with us in the parking lot. It is good to see Zach and Megan. Everyone needs to congratulate them for their recent marriage and celebrate that union. And so we're really happy for them and with them. And it's good to have them back with us this evening. But do be mindful, all the others that uh, we're concerned about, you know, those particularly that may be in hospitals or waiting treatment, uh, please be aware of them and check on them, as well as the caregivers, as they have much to bear. We'll open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. In a moment, we're going to read some verses from that chapter. In 1 Samuel chapter 8. The Word of God begins by saying, In the beginning, God created. God created the heavens and the earth. He created man in his own image. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Clearly, when you begin to read the opening pages of the Holy Scriptures, of the very Word of God, God's mind communicating to mankind, clearly, from the very beginning of time, image bearers of God have had responsibilities. And the fact is, we are beings who, whose wills need instructions, whose wills need directions. We are not the product of chance. We are not the product of chaos. But rather, we have been brought into being for a purpose. And what we find is that the potter who made us from the very dust of the earth made us to be vessels. Vessels who glorify Him. And glorify Him on earth. How? By fulfilling why we were created. And so therefore, if there are expectations or if there are rules that we are to follow, then someone made those rules. Rules which originated in the mind and in the will of another. The originator, the author of rules, in its most simplistic meaning, is a ruler. And man needs rulers. Societies need rulers. And God is the supremely preeminent ruler above all. There is none like him. He is king. God, our creator, is king. Whether men recognize him to be one or not, doesn't matter. He still is. God is king. He is the supreme ruler. He is the preeminent ruler. And there is none that compares to him. With that said, I want you to turn your eyes now to your passage that you have opened. As you begin reading here in the first few verses of the 8th chapter, 
at a particular time when Israel is wanting a king. And I would suggest to you, Israel had a king when they had no king. Israel had a king when they had no king. And we see that in this passage. And so we begin here in verse 1. And it came about when Samuel was old. That he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel. And the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways. But turned aside after dishonest gain. And took bribes. And perverted justice. Then... All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Israel had a king when they had no king. Now, You are familiar with Israel's history when you think about the period of the Judges. And you read that book and you see it was a very turbulent time. It was a very turbulent occasion and period of their history because of their repeated unfaithfulness. Generation after generation reaped what they had sown and their harvest was what? What what was the harvest they had to bear? Well, it was a harvest that produced hardships and oppression. But also in the book of Judges, we see time and time again, God revealed himself to be Israel's mighty, merciful deliverer. Again and again, God would deliver them from their oppressors, from their hardship. When they turn their hearts back to God. So through all those unfaithful years. God was always faithful. God was always faithful to his word. And as a result. God was always faithful to his people. And so here we have an occasion where. The elders of Israel, the people of the land, are dissatisfied with their circumstances. They are unsatisfied with the injustices being committed by Samuel's sons, rightfully so. So they want to change. And they think getting a king, like the other nations, is the change they need. But God reminds Samuel that... I was their king, but they want someone else. So what is the role of a king? They want a king, and so what what are they looking for? Well, this passage, this context of chapter 8 gives us some insight of what a king 
is or who a king is and what he should be like. And they are very obvious you know, things that are brought out you know, in, in the context. For example, in verse 11. Verse 11, it says, you know, Samuel spoke the word of the Lord to the people. In verse 10, he says, and this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. What's the first thing a king does? Like, well, a king reigns. And to reign means to rule or to govern as a sovereign. As one who has supreme authority. As one who has supreme rank and power. That's what it means to reign as a king. And interestingly, what you find here, Israel desired a man to be that monarch over them. They wanted a man like themselves to be this one who's going to rule and govern them as a sovereign, supreme authority. Thinking that that would be the remedy to all the unrighteousness of wicked judges. Thinking that's going to, that's going to solve all our problems. Well, when you start reading and studying God's account of the kings, it didn't remedy the problems, did it? Because the hearts of the people were wicked. But that's what they're thinking. We want a king to reign over us. Well, God had been and was the omnipotent sovereign of the universe and still is. But not only is he that over the universe, but he is that over mankind. And uniquely, when you think about it, in the relationship between God and Israel, uniquely, he became Israel's king when? When he entered a covenant union with Abraham's descendants. And you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 19. And you look there as God is speaking to the people through Moses. Right before the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. We see that God says to them in verse 3 and following. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came, called the elders of the people, and set before them all these words the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. God is sovereign of the universe. God is sovereign of humanity. But uniquely in this relationship, when, when they entered this covenant relationship with Jehovah... In a sense, they agreed to God's terms to be his kingdom, to be his nation, and they were accepting him as their king. When they became God's kingdom, when they became God's nation, God became, in a unique way, their special king. 
So in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel already had a king. They already had a king, but they didn't know it. They had forgotten who their king was. Or they just didn't appreciate it. But they had a king. From the moment they agreed to accept that covenant relationship, God was their king. And so that's why when Samuel prays to God and God answered him, he says, he's, they're, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, as their judge. They're not, you know, they're not turning away from you. They're turning away from me. They don't want me to be their king. So that's the first thing a king. A king reigns and God reigns. The second thing the king does, we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, is that a king judges. They say, now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Think about the circumstance here. In spite of Samuel's ungodly sons, and they were ungodly men. And in spite of their ungodly, their, you know, their character and the terrible job they are in being judges in the land, Israelites still knew they needed judges. They needed someone to discern good and evil when it came to the affairs of men. They recognized that. We do need someone to judge us. We want someone to reign over us, and we want that one who reigns over us to judge us. And Samuel's sons illustrate that perverted justice does occur among men. And perverted justice can occur even among men who profess to be men of God. And so this story illustrates the fallibility of men. But the king's judgments are to be what? Well, the king's judgments are to be an execution of justice. That's what we want. And that's what they wanted. And that's, what it, what's, that's one of the jobs of the king. To reign and to judge. Go back to Proverbs very quickly. Consider what, is, what we're told in Proverbs 31. In Proverbs 31... You have the mother of King Lemuel. And she has some things to say to her son about judging justly. And she advises uh, her son and tells him that kings and rulers should not desire wine. They should not desire strong drink. Why? Because such things cause judgments to become Perverted. And so he says, verse 4, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed. Wine and strong drink messes with the mind and the senses. And so the mother of this king wisely instructs her son, who is king, don't take that path. Why? Because verse 5, for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. The role of a king is to reign, yes, but the role of a king is also to judge. 
to judge justly, to judge righteously, particularly on behalf of those who are afflicted. And drop down to verse 8 and see what she further says to her son. So he says to her son, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. Samuel's sons were not doing that. They weren't kings, but they weren't doing that as judges. But a king's role is to execute justice, execute judgment. And once again, Jehovah was already that for Israel. Jehovah had already shown himself to be man's holy, just, righteous judge. For example... In the saving of Noah and his family, while washing the earth of its uncleanness, was the execution of the supreme king's judgment. That's what's going on there. God reigns. And he judges. And he judged the earth in Noah's day. Justly and righteously. But even more recently, bring it more so in the time frame of the nation of Israel, you see he had been judging them. He had been judging Israel and holding them account- accountable as well from you know, the sins of the days of the wilderness wanderings to generations later where they're suffering at the hands of the plunderers because they repeatedly forsook God. The book of Judges. It's, all, it's about God executing justice even with his children and so God is judge he's the supreme judge but they're wanting a man who's fallible to be their king and judge but the third characteristic we can find here in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel is down in verse 20 where again you know Samuel after you know warning them about what the king will do it's not going to be you know so rosy when he starts taking your sons and calling the service or taking property or taxing you and all of that, it's not going to be as wonderful as you think it is. And so they respond to that and says, No, there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. What else does a king do? A king reigns, a king judges. And the king leads. And particularly he leads his subjects into battle. And that's exactly what God had been doing for Israel throughout their history. It was the great I Am who went before them and brought them out of Egypt with mighty miracles. And even drowning Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. It was God who has gone before them into battle as their king. And it was God, it was Jehovah who went before them and defeated armies and nations greater and mightier than Israel herself. For what reason? In order to give them possession of the land that God had promised them. That's the book of Joshua. It was God who led them into their battles and brought them victory. 
And it was that same God, El Shaddai, God Almighty, who was moved with compassion by their penitent groanings and raised up judges time and time again to do what? To deliver them from their oppressors, to give them victory again in their battles. That's the book of Judges. God, the sovereign, supreme, preeminent ruler of the universe, of mankind, and particularly of Israel, was and still is the mightiest warrior and captain anyone can have. He was the perfect king. And yet, they sought an earthly one. And their history testifies to the sad story that unfolds. But what more can we learn about God, our Creator, being King? Well, nothing that I would suggest to you based upon back in the context of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 19, they have agreed to the covenant relationship. And so they are entering into this covenant. And now God is going to give them his laws. And ten commandments are written on, stone, on, on tablets of stone. And we see, particularly there, uh, you look at verse 2 and verse 3. When he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. What else do we know about this king? He says, you obey me. You keep my commandments. You keep the covenant. You'll be my kingdom. You'll be my nation. But what do you need to understand about the nature of this king, Jehovah? God does not share his monarchy. God does not share his rule. And so when God chose and offered this covenant relationship, a blessed covenant relationship to the sons of it, when he did that, in a sense, he was telling them that he would be their everlasting king. Yet you... Obey me, you remain faithful to me, I will be your king. I will take care of you. His laws would have made them holy. His laws would have brought them ongoing blessings. His laws would have provided them peace and prosperity. But he says, I don't share that with anyone or anything. You shall have no other gods. You shall have no other kings. God, Elohim, the one true God that has no co-regent. Now among men, kings may co-reign at times, depending upon the circumstances, depending upon the uncertainties, and, and that is expedient occasionally. That among human kings, manly kings, there are Co-regency sometimes. Why is that? Because men are fallible. That's why. And sometimes, you know, kings become physically or even mentally handicapped. And so there needs to be a co-regent to step in. But with Jehovah, the God who is king everlasting, 
who has, you know, no, you know, co-regent with him, that God is from everlasting to everlasting. That God is the unshakable rock. He is the unquenchable light. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He needs no one to share it with. His monarchy is his and his alone. He does not need a co-regent to assist him to achieve his purpose, to accomplish his will, to govern his people, and to bring them into eternal safety. But do men still try to serve more than one king at a time? Yes. Israel had a king. But God alone wasn't enough for them. They want, they want a, a man king as well. And throughout the history you see them serving other gods. And so basically elevating other things as kings in their life. And that story is repeated in the lives of human beings time and time again. God, who's the sovereign of all kings, and does not share that monarchy with anyone. And yet people try to compromise and put someone up there alongside him in their life. God. The Ancient of Days dwells in a heavenly and eternal throne. There's a number of passages that depict the throne scene of our God and of our King. One is in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted with the train of His robe filling the temple. Here is God sitting on his throne, reigning as the sovereign. Daniel, as well, writes about that and speaks of that imagery. And so in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, he says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was, was ablaze with flames, and its wheels were burning fire. As you read already this evening in Revelation chapter 4, you look there in verse 2. He says, immediately I was in the Spirit. Behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like jasper stone, a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Here you have the ancient of days, God, Jehovah, the sovereign of the universe, the one who described as who was, who is, and who is to come, has always been God Almighty and thus man's supreme ruler, sovereign king, and God's throne is not just a chair. It's not just an exalted chair he sits in. To proclaim his decrees. That's not the imagery of Isaiah or Daniel or John. The imagery of these visions is that he is the throne. God is the throne. 
He dwells, he lives, he abides, he exists. For he is the throne. He is in heaven and he is eternal. And you and I are subjects of this heavenly monarch. It is not a democracy. We don't get to vote and elect him. He's rightfully king. For he is God. He is creator. He is El Shaddai. He is the I Am. And all men are under this king. Everybody is under God. This heavenly, eternal God. Who described as sitting on a throne in all this glory and radiance. And they're under that king even if they choose to be disloyal to him. That doesn't change who God is. It doesn't change his supreme authority. It doesn't change his, his supreme power nor his supreme rank. And they will bear the consequences of that disloyalty. But why does a ruler rule? Why does a ruler rule? A simple question. Perhaps we can answer it with some of the points we've already made. Well, for one reason, he rules to govern. To govern the people and give laws to, to create peace and order in society. And he, and he rules and reigns for what other reasons? Well, to judge, to execute justice in the land, and also to go before them and defeat the enemies. So that's one answer. To the question, why a ruler rules. But there's another ruler who wants to be your king. And that's the devil. Satan. Satan wants to rule as a king in the world of men. And he wants to rule as king in your personal life. But why? Why does he want to do that? Well, perhaps part of the answer could be found in the temptations of, to, of Jesus. There in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, when Jesus is being tempted there, and it says he was taken up on a high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms and of the earth and their glory. He shows it all, and he says, I will give this all to you. If you'll simply bow and worship me. What's he wanting? What's he wanting from Jesus? He's wanting Jesus to bow and give allegiance to him. He wants to be, he wants to be king of Jesus there. And that's exactly what he wants of us. You know, Satan wants to be king in your life. One reason because he wants your allegiance. He wants you to bow to him. He wants your will Subjected to his will. And all of his purposes though are evil. For his objective is depicted there in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8. Familiar verse. Where Satan is described as our adversary who is like an animal. Interestingly, the expression... The animal that is depicted in, in most society and culture is the king of the jungle. 
That's what Satan wants to be, the king of the jungle of society. But what's his objective there as our adversary? Is it to judge us according to righteousness? Is it to, is it to, to go and lead us into battles and give us victory over enemies? No. His purpose is evil and his, his objective simply is to devour. He, he wants to rule to devour you. To consume you. To overtake you. And control you. But what about God? God is ruler. But why does he rule? Well, he rules, first of all, because of who he is. But also, God rules according to who he is. And who is he? How is God's character, his nature, described to us so often in the scriptures? Well, he is light. He is love. He is life. Those are just a few of the descriptions of who he is. And he rules according to that nature, according to his own being. And it is a rule of light, and it's a rule of love, and it's a rule of life. And he reigns, why? He reigns for the good of men. Because he wants you, and he wants me, to share in all of that goodness. And so God's laws contained in his inspired scripture, God's laws are designed to bless us. They're designed to, to, uh, to provide peace that is the product of the execution of justice. And they're designed to bring us victory over all of our adversaries, even death itself. That's why God reigns. He rules for your well-being and for my well-being because we can't even direct our own steps without faltering. We need a king. And the king we need is God, is Jehovah. The very one that Israel so long ago in their Ignorance or forgetfulness or maybe just sheer stupidity. Rejected. And they wanted something far less perfect. The kingdoms of men are all subservient to the one who is truly king. The one who is king absolute. And that's God. So don't turn, don't turn to the world, don't turn to, to you know, civil authorities that have a place in God's great scheme of things to assist in sustaining some sense of order in this chaos called life. But don't turn to them to remedy your problems, but they can't. They will fail every time in the end. 
There's only one who could rule you and keep his promise. We live in a a culture, an environment where we hear a lot of promises. You know, and sometimes a few of them are kept. Sometimes the promises are made knowing they're not going to be able to keep them because of the political environment. But I suggest to you sometimes they make the promises never intended to keep them. That's the kingdom of man. But that's not our king, is it? Our king is our God. Our king is our creator. The one who spoke and the one who has been faithful in every way throughout history. If you're not a citizen of God's kingdom, that means you're a citizen of Satan's domain. You're serving him, even if you believe the lies that you're not. You're not part of God's kingdom. You're outside of that kingdom. If you're outside the kingdom, then you are doomed to fail. You're doomed to lose. Victory is in God and that victory is in His Son, Jesus Christ. If you believe Jesus to be the Christ, to be the Son of God, but you have not confessed that with your mouth, unashamedly before others, and repented of your sins and been baptized into Christ, we want to encourage you to think about that tonight. And urge you to make that decision if you're ready to make that commitment. In a moment we're going to sing a song, a song invitation for us to listen to those words and admonish one another to consider eternity, consider the decisions we make in light. And why not tonight make one that will save your soul. If we can help you any way spiritually, please come now and we stand and sing the song that's been selected.